You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Michael Halcombe here. I hope that you're doing well. Thank you for listening, as always. This is another special episode of Proof Text. Recently, uh, Fred Long asked me to join his Greek One class with Asbury Theological Seminary and be a guest lecturer. And so in this episode, uh, I kind of share my testimony, how I got into Greek, how I maintain Greek, some strategies that uh, you might be interested in for learning and maintaining Greek, and what is it like to use Greek in everyday ministry? Uh, is that even needed or necessary? And so, uh, yeah, I hope this is a great benefit to you. I really enjoyed talking with Fred and his students, and I hope that you're blessed by this and encouraged by it. All right, here we go. Enjoy. Looking for creative ways to launch your biblical language studies to the next level? We here at Glosa House create resources with you in mind. We've created a stock of innovative and cutting-edge audio, video, digital, and print resources to help you reach your language goals. Visit glosahouse.com to find what you've been looking for. Glosa House, language resources for the global community. Okay. Well, um, thanks everybody for that short break. I wanted, I thought it would be nice, uh, fun to have Michael uh, come on and. Uh, He's a great friend of mine. He's one of Asbury's PhD students. Uh, then he's, you know, now he's Dr. Halcombe. He worked with uh, Dr. Witherington. And he's now pastoring at a church, in the Church of Nazarene in Hawaii. But he's uh, my business co-partner for Glossa House. Uh, we've published a lot of books together. He also has a conversational Koine Institute, which was like a immersive Greek kind of learning and um, he's a great preacher as well. Like he gives his congregation really meaty material. And I, I thought it might be helpful to hear from him a little bit about learning Greek. And we're like opposite. So like when I learned it, it was like memorization. Like I could do it. Michael needed like conversation, you know, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But I'll just hand it over to you, Michael. Thanks so much. What time is okay. it there? Uh, it's three in the afternoon, so 3 p.m. Yep. Um, so thanks everyone for letting me join. Uh, hopefully the technology will work the way that we've got it going. Um, my computer is actually acting a little funky here, but um, yeah, as Fred said, I live in Hawaii. I live on the island of Oahu and have been here about uh, five years. And uh, it was a tough transition. We moved from Kentucky to here and Really, in the last, I think, year, we've kind of started to get our feet under us. But uh, the first three or four years have been really, really uh, challenging to be here. But, boy, it's a beautiful place, and um, the scenery almost uh, makes up for it. <laughs> the scenery is, in a lot of ways, what's kept me grounded, and it's it's even been healing at times, um, it seems. I have uh, four kids, three of those we've adopted from Ethiopia, and we just have one biological daughter. And uh, I've been married to Christy, who's a, a nurse and RN. I've been married to her for, well, 19 years next week. So a long time. 
Um, I guess I'll start in uh, following that by just telling you a little bit about my my own faith journey uh, to where I am now. Uh, I became so I'm 41. I became a Christian uh, right between right in the summer of my junior between my junior year and senior year of high school. So right when my junior year finished and summer hit, I kind of I became a Christian around that time, right before the start of my senior year of high school. So just a little over 20 years ago. Um, and it's a weird story how that happened. I was, I was skipping class one day in high school to hang out with a girlfriend and my first period uh, uh, teacher in high school, my English teacher always locked the door once bell rang. And so I knew I wasn't getting back in. And I saw one of my buddies from the soccer team uh, he was also out of class. So I asked him what he was doing and uh, he was going to a college meeting and, and he, I asked him, you're going to get a pass. So he said, yeah. So I went with him to that meeting and just sat through it with the girlfriend and uh, at the end got my pass and was able to get back into English class. Well, a few months after that, after skipping class, that's when I became a Christian. And like a week or two after that, I got some mail uh, in the mail from Kentucky Christian College. It's like, how did they know that I just became a Christian? And I remembered, oh, I was skipping class like several months ago. And, um, you know, that's that's how they found out about me. So uh, I ended up going straight to Bible college right out, uh, right out of high school. And um, it was an interesting time. That was an independent Christian church college, Kentucky Christian University. Uh, situated within the Restoration Movement, which some of you may know about the Churches of Christ, Christian churches, Disciples of Christ. Um, and so from there, I, I did youth ministry and uh, even was a senior pastor for about five or so years, or maybe yeah, five years in a Christian church. And um, during that time, I, I did my MDiv, and then I started a Master's of Arts and biblical studies at Asbury. And that's where I really kind of started to get interested in the languages. And that was really um, the first time that that I was, I found the, the theological language that I was looking for, like I felt at home. Um, the, the professors were describing things in ways that yeah, yeah, that's what I think. That's what I believe. And they were giving me the language to be able to articulate some of the beliefs that I had already had. And so I shifted away from the Christian church to the Methodist church. And I was in the United Methodist Church for many years, maybe a decade or so. And then uh, when we moved to uh, Hawaii, I my first order of business was to call all the United Methodist Churches here, and I was asking them their stance on marriage, and uh, none of them held a traditional, what I would say, a scriptural view on marriage, and so that's when I decided to leave the United Methodist Church about five years ago. Did a little bit of a stint in an Anglican church for about a year, but found my way to the Church of the Nazarene, which I like to call, uh, <laughs> hopefully not offending any United Methodists, but, um, you know, faithful brothers and sisters of our United Methodist. So um, I've been in the, the Church of the Nazarene for about three years now, and I feel in a lot of ways very at home, but the sort of a liberal streak that 
that exists in every denomination, of course, exists in this one too. And so I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to, to deal with that and handle that and navigate that. But that's kind of my journey uh, from the start of being a Christian to being a pastor where I'm at now. I've also always kept one foot in the academy. And that's been a real wrestling match for me because um, I don't play the academy game very well. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I, I say what I think and I'm, I'm very uh, just straightforward and um, that, that in a lot of places and by a lot of people in academia hasn't necessarily been welcomed. Um, so, but I have tried to keep my foot in. I've been teaching at a university here in Hawaii for five years. And then um, I've been teaching Greek and Hebrew and some Bible and theology classes. And now I'm going to start working with Bethel University. Um, we're going to try to do a satellite campus plant here in Oahu. Uh, Fred used to actually teach uh, at Bethel as well. And, um, you know, I grew up really poor. I grew up moving from apartment to trailer, apartment to trailer, apartment to trailer, all over Ohio and Kentucky. And um, I wasn't a hard worker throughout middle school and high school. I just did what I needed to get by. Um, it was really when I got to my master's of divinity that things started to change because I was at Lexington Theological Seminary in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was the only evangelical in the entire institution. Um, Already in 1999 and 2000, I had an Old Testament professor there who was uh, already performing gay marriages and things like that. And uh, they, they referred to the word evangelical as the E word. And um, so it was like you weren't even allowed to say evangelical around the campus. But I was the only one there. And that's where I, I learned, one, how to love people who thought differently than me, even radically different than me. Uh, but two, I learned that, you know, I really need to be able to articulate why I believe what I believe. And uh, two things really started to, to collide for me at that time or, or intersect maybe is a better word. Um, while I was there at Lexington Theological Seminary, I went over to Asbury and took um, an independent study course or just like a, I don't know if independent study or correspondence course uh, on biblical theology with Dr. Witherington. And um, so the, the culture and theology like stuff really started to like hit home for me. And around the same time, like I started doing language work and that's where the, the culture and language of antiquity, that stuff started to really land for me. And I thought, man, if I'm going to, if I'm going to really be able to like live through what we're doing here, like being the only evangelical in this institution, I got to be able to explain, you know, my perspectives and my views. And so I started to really dig into to understanding ancient context, ancient culture, and maybe even most importantly, ancient language. In high school, I took Spanish and French. I didn't do very well. Um, and then in seminary, I started to take Greek and Hebrew. I did okay, but it was a real, real struggle. And uh, Fred began by saying that, you know, we're kind of opposites. In some ways we are. Uh, for me, I really needed the um, a sort of immersive approach to learning a language because that's, 
essentially really how we learn a language by hearing it and trying to, to speak it and messing up thousands and thousands of times. And um, so the hard part was at that time, there was nobody else like speaking the language, right? Um, and so what I started doing in my Greek one course, which I took at Asbury, um, I started practicing reading the Greek text out loud. So I'm going to give you some strategies for, for how, I, um, how I started to really get into Greek and was trying to make it stick. So the first one that I want to share with you is that uh, I, just had, I just started recording myself. Like I had an audio recorder uh, and I just started reading the text out loud and recording that. And then I'd go on runs or go on walks and just listen to that back. Um, and I was trying to just let it sink in. I mean, it's trying to do a little bit of memorization, but not really trying to memorize, trying to just internalize the language, hearing it, hearing those verses, hearing those vocabulary words, and just letting them sink in. And so one of the things, I mean, if you're just starting Greek, I would highly, every, I would highly recommend that to you. Every phone nowadays, pretty much, uh, you can record audio on that. But I think one of the, the smartest things that you can do is to record yourself reading out loud and spend a decent amount of time listening to that back. Um, it gives you a feel for the language. You get to hear the language. Um, and again, you just start to internalize it. And if you're into memorization, then it can help you memorize too. The same goes for vocabulary word lists. Um, if you're using Fred's book, his Greek grammar book, then I've already made audio recordings of all those. So you can actually save yourself some time and listen to those. Um, or you can, you know, I'd recommend you recording your own self on your phone, reading your vocabulary words and just listening to those back while you run, while you do dishes, while you uh, walk or whatever uh, in the car while you're driving. Um, so that, that would be my, my first strategy for you. The second thing that I would suggest that you do, and maybe this is the most helpful, I don't know, uh, for me, I, I think it has been, in addition to speaking, the most helpful thing, that's composition, writing Greek. Um, and I'm not just talking about looking at what's on a page and rewriting it, although that can be helpful. I'm talking about trying to come up with very short sentences uh, trying to come up with noun phrases, prepositional phrases, really short chunks of Greek, um, two, three, four words on your own, and uh, then just over time lengthening that. So the composition stuff is, is really good because it forces you to do things like subject verb agreement um, or noun adjective agreement or article uh, noun or article adjective agreement and so on and so forth. And if you haven't gotten into those sorts of things yet, uh, you'll understand as you go throughout the semester what agreement is. Um, composition is really, really, really beneficial. So I heartily commend that to you. And then just um, reading scripture would be a third one. Uh, you, If you're into interlinear kind of thing where you have the Greek and English together, that could be helpful, but I think that's distracting to a lot of people. So just practicing reading. And if you have a buddy, a partner, um, 
even better. So if there's someone in class you can pair up with and say, hey, let's meet for a half hour a week on Zoom or in person, I'll read 15 minutes, you give me some feedback and you read 15 minutes and I give you some feedback, that could be really useful too. Or if you meet for 30 minutes, you could each read aloud for 10 minutes and then practice 10 minutes of translating or trying to translate together. So we I think uh, recording and listening back to your own audio is a really, really helpful strategy. Uh, composition, starting very, very short. And as you get better and as you learn more about the language, um, stretching those short compositions into longer ones. Uh, from phrases to, to sentences and uh, paragraphs and so on. The third one is just reading scripture. That's good to do alone, but it's even better if you can have a partner or partners who you're working with. Um, and my favorite, even though maybe it isn't the most beneficial, my favorite is, is speaking. And this is where you really uh, get the language down in you. And you get a feel for the language. You start to get a feel for the language, just like your, your native language. Uh, Fred and I did a little book years ago called Speak Koine Greek. It's a really thin little book. And it's got a bunch of great starter phrases um, that will get you going. Things like, what is your name? Where are you from? Where do you live? <clears throat> and so on and so forth. So speaking uh, is incredibly useful. I did a TED talk some years ago, and in the TED talk, I was mentioning how speaking was uh, really, really beneficial to me. As I said at the start of this, uh, the problem, the, the reason I was recording myself when I first started getting into Greek, because I didn't know other people existed who were trying to speak point A. And I found a little group of people, just a handful of people uh, in Jerusalem, and I went to Jerusalem uh, maybe a decade or so ago and spent a whole month there. And that's what sort of jump-started me uh, into trying to do Greek conversationally. And so uh, being able to say things like, you know, what's your name? My name is Michael. Or, um, you know, where are you from? Uh, Ego Apotes, Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. Or where do you live? Apu Katukis, Katuko in the Hawaii. I live in Hawaii. Uh, things like that, right? And so able to just uh, call out the language and utilize the language without having to really think about it. There's no, that's not any memorization. It's just down in me, right? And it just comes out just like it does with English. Um, and so I've found that to be really useful. I think that that uh, built on top of the composition and reading scripture um, is what really propelled me forward the most in terms of being able to crack open my Greek Testament and read it without any help. Now, I'm not saying I know every word or every form, but I can pretty much open even the Septuagint or the New Testament and read those, and I don't need helps for the most part. Um, and I will say this too, that, that took me uh, probably a decade to get to that point. And so I've had people say things to me like, oh, you know, you just make it seem so easy. Like you're just a natural language learner. Well, that's not, 
that's not really how it works. Um, there's a whole decade uh, behind that of, of hard, hard, hard work, lots of research, lots of study. Um, and, you know, it, it can't just be chalked up to being a good language learner. Um, although I do think that one of the myths I had bought into back in high school when I was taking Spanish and French was that I wasn't good at languages. And then I realized, because we, we were learning them sort of just in a bookish way. And I realized once I found some people to start speaking Greek with that, whoa, I'm good at this. Like, I'm good at this. I'm good at languages. Um, and so it wasn't so much that I was bad at languages, but it was just how the languages were being taught that I think was more of the issue. And so, uh, you know, if you're in that spot where you're just dreading Greek or dreading Hebrew, um, you know, maybe trying to add some speaking in would be really, really beneficial to you. Um, and I'll say uh, just one more tip. So um, maybe two. Um, another is pronunciation. And a lot of people, I know, I know a lot of uh, Greek professors who really downplay pronunciation and act as though it isn't really important, but it is important. Um, if not, the, if for no other reason, then once you start to look at ancient manuscripts and do text criticism, if you're not, if you've not been using the proper pronunciation that was used in the Koine or New Testament era, a lot of those uh, text critical issues aren't going to make sense to you. Why is why is this letter here in this manuscript, or why is the word spelled this way? Um, and so, a big part of my my career as a scholar has been trying to bring a more correct pronunciation uh, into Bible colleges, universities, and seminaries, into academia. And I make such a big deal of this because I believe it facilitates or hinders learning. If you're using what is known as the Erasmian pronunciation, that really is going to inhibit learning. If you're going to use modern Greek pronunciation, that'll help, but it's still going to create in the long run just as many problems as the Erasmian pronunciation. So what I've been using is what we call the Koine era pronunciation. And um, it feels like a real language. It sounds like a real language. And uh, it's the closest approximation to what we have for a Koine Greek that existed in the New Testament era. And so pronunciation is huge. Don't, don't overlook that. Um, when you're practicing your own reading aloud, or recording yourself or working with your partner. Pronunciation is really important. So make sure you, you uh, really dwell on that and pay attention to it. And really, once you can, once you can get pronunciation down, oh, it makes reading the New Testament so much fun, right? So uh, don't overlook pronunciation. Uh, if you listen, uh, to any of the podcasts that Fred and I do together called Proof Text. Um, a lot of times on those, I'll be reading the Greek before we discuss it. And Fred will, Fred will oftentimes just comment about, you know, the pronunciation and how the reading sounds so good. And um, that's encouraging to me. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that it's because I've made a big deal out of pronunciation that it works, right? And um, so I just want to encourage you to focus on that. And 
the last tip I want to give you for just studying is just never stop. Never stop studying. The temptation when you get into formal ministry, into the pastorate, is to stop, uh, to just, you know, you got the credit under your belt and, you know, you can just rely on an interlinear or, I don't know, a dictionary, you know, a lexicon or whatever. But don't do that. Never stop studying. Uh, never stop studying by yourself. Or if you have other pastors you work with or other friends, uh, try to get them involved. And so those are just a handful of tips that I would give you for, for your some strategies for studying Greek, recording yourself and listening to it back, <coughs> composition, uh, reading scripture aloud by yourself or with other people, trying to learn how to speak Greek, um, working on your pronunciation and getting that down, and then just never stop studying. Um, and so before I, I go on to, I, I want to just talk a little bit about Greek and ministry, and then I think Fred and I have something else for you if we have time. But um, before I do that, do you guys have any thoughts, comments, or questions about any of the stuff I just shared? Any questions? No. No. Hey, you have to remember it's like six hours later than you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are 9.30. Are today and are flown, yeah. You guys are at 9.30 there? It's 8.30. Um, I'm wondering, uh, this is a Greek one class, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering like what what your students are going to be doing uh, in terms of like, what is their study routine going to look like? What do you have them doing, Fred? Oh, oh, I've just encouraged uh, daily habits. I've encouraged using as many senses as they can. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's basically, you know, what, what we've been talking about, how to write out all the vocabulary, pronounce things, you know, lean into that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We don't well, do composition. You know, we don't do composition. But I think you know, when we have the live class. We could do that. Um, you know, how would we write this out in Greek? I think that's a good, particularly when they're getting their mind around cases and tense, to talk about those kinds of things. How would we render this phrase? You know, particularly mm -hmm. like uh, they haven't learned it yet, but the genitive case. You know, how to translate ofs, ofs. You know. The word, yeah. you know, what does that mean? I, 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 I send the book to Peter, you know, what case would book be in? What case would Peter be in? Mm. So be that to think in English and to work back into Greek. So we'll probably do that Saturday. It's a lot to cover 15 chapters in two and a half days. Mm. Yeah, I had, to I had to choose when do we want to have this class? Middle, beginning, end. And I chose the beginning to provide a framework of motivation. Yes. So that was the right choice. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes. good, 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 good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good, very happy to hear that. Okay, got a question. I do have a question if you can hear me. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you well. I, I serve as a pastor and I have other pastor friends. I even have a uh, professor at seminary who's a, at Asbury who's a friend of mine that I talked to on the phone today. Won't share his name with you, but they often tell me that 
there's not really a big reason to take Greek or Hebrew, to learn Greek or Hebrew, because we do have the lexicons, because we do have mm. interlinear Bibles, because so many people have poured so much time into translation for us. Why should I spend so much time mm. translating what has already been translated? Um, you spoke to that just a little bit of don't just rely on the lexicon, don't just rely on the interlinear, but can you speak on some more of, especially as a pastor, mm. how has Greek been useful to you to yes. lead your congregation? Yeah, um, so I'm going to take a long route to answering that question. That's a, that's a really a good question, um, and I'll say this, that... Uh, you know, you you take Greek, hopefully not merely because you have to, but because you want to, right? There's there's this idea that um, with, with just a simple tweaking of your language, you can completely change your own, pers own perspective, right? It's the difference between saying I have to and I get to, right? And just changing that word have to get, um, it, it just makes a world of difference. Oh, I have to drive my kids to school. No, I get to drive my kids to school. Or, you know, I have to do this wedding. No, I get to do this wedding, you know. Um, and so I have to take Greek to, no, I get to take Greek. I mean, think of how many other people in the world that would love to have the opportunity that you're having right now and that I've been able to have in the past. And you're teaching with, you know, you're learning with Fred. And I would consider Fred just a top-notch scholar. He's one of my favorite scholars and he's one of my best friends. And um, you guys are really uh, fortunate to be able to have Fred. This guy knows his stuff. Um, and so, you know, I would just say for the first, like the first thing to think about is maybe, and I'm not saying you were saying this, but um, if, if any of you were there thinking, oh, I have to, and you, you maybe thought that I have to take Greek, maybe just try to flip that narrative for yourself and think of it in terms of I get to take Greek, and I, I get to take Greek with Fred Long, a uh, top-notch scholar, and I get to take Greek at Asbury Seminary, one of the best seminaries in the world, right? And so it isn't a have to, but I get to. Oh, Witherington used to tell this story, and um, it's, it's the one Witherington story that's always stuck with me. I think he might have got it from Amy Jill Levine, but uh, whatever. Um, it's a story, the way he tells it is that he had a seminary student come up to him after the biblical theology class and uh, was uh, more charismatic, uh, of, of a more charismatic stripe. And he said, Dr. Ben, you know, why, why do I have to, to, to come to all these theology classes when I can just get in the pulpit on Sunday and the spirit gives me the words to say? Why do I have to take all these quizzes? Why do I have to take all these tests? Why do I have to read all these books? write all these papers, when I can just get in the pulpit and the spirit and give me the words to say, and without missing a beat, uh, Witherington replied, well, it's a shame you're not giving the spirit more to work with. <laughs> and, you know, that's always stuck with me. And I, I would just submit the same to you, that this opportunity for you to be in this Greek class or any other class is really just an opportunity for you to give the spirit more to work with. And so it's not thinking I have to, but I get to. I get to give the Spirit more to work with. And so I'm going to let him, I'm going to let the Spirit stretch me during this time. If I have to be stretched, I'm going to let him grow me up, let him mature me. 
And, um, you know, when I was doing my MDiv with a guy named Jerry Sumney, uh, he also made a point to me. Someone asked the same exact question that you asked, essentially, in, in our class, uh, Lexington Seminary. And Jerry's response to, to that question was, here's the reason why you need to work on the languages and why it's good for you to be doing translating, even though there are other people who have spent lifetimes doing it and will spend lifetimes doing it, because you may see something we all missed. And um, essentially, if you think about all the PhD students at Asbury who are writing dissertations, that's their goal, right? That is they're trying to write a, a dissertation because they've seen something that everybody else has missed, even if it's just a very tiny thing. Um, and so, you know, everybody in the class laughed when our professor said that, but lo and behold, like I've written a dissertation. I've seen things people have missed. I've written books. I've seen things people have missed even thousands of years on. And so that doesn't come from a place of arrogance. Uh, just comes from a place of, I love this text so much. I don't want us to miss anything. I want us to get everything that's there. And so you can discover something that we've all missed. And that that's, you bring a unique perspective to the, the process of translation and language learning and Bible and theology. And so your, maybe your unique perspective will give you an angle on something or an insight on something that we've just all missed because we didn't have that particular angle or insight. And so um, as far as for me, I use Greek every week as a pastor. Uh, same with Hebrew. I use Greek and Hebrew every single week as a pastor. Um, and I, I've been told by various professors throughout my, my career, my academic career, you know, it's not a good idea. It's not your place to share Greek or Hebrew in a sermon. Like nobody cares about that. Nobody. But I found that, that if I don't do that, I feel like I'm cheating my people out of something. There's so much richness to be found um, in the languages. I just preached uh, a year and a half through Genesis, right? All 50 chapters. I just finished last Sunday. And it was really cool because the when if you don't know Hebrew, you're going to miss it. But Genesis in the Hebrew opens up with the prepositional phrase, bereshit, right? In the beginning or in a beginning. And those are the first like two words of Genesis. And it's interesting because the last two words of Genesis are also a prepositional phrase, in Egypt. And so it's super interesting to me that Genesis 1.1 opens with a prepositional phrase and Genesis 50.26 closes the book with a prepositional phrase. And that this whole story is bracketed between prepositional phrases in a beginning and in Egypt. And it tells us that between this prepositional phrase and this one, something's gone wrong. <laughs> they weren't supposed to be here. They were so, supposed to be, this should have been Ba'aretz uh, Israel in the land of Israel, or in the promised land, or something like that. And so I was pointing that out in the sermon last week, right? That, that Hebrew inclusio, that's really important. I was also pointing out last week that in Genesis 50, we find the common word hineni. Uh, and 
that's a really um, at your service or here I am or I am here or something like that. And that's a really important word throughout Genesis. And so important words like that that will track throughout a whole book are, are really important to pick up on and to share with our people so that they don't miss these kinds of things. Or how in the beginning, uh, in Genesis 37, the beginning of the Joseph story, uh, you have this uh, statement that the brothers cannot speak to Joseph uh, with shalom, right? Uh, they, they were lacking shalom toward Joseph. Well, later on, after they reunite, um, you, you find that they are able to speak to him with shalom, or he's able to speak to them with shalom. So it's another inclusio, and you can track that throughout the story. And, you know, I'm giving Hebrew examples right now, but uh, this, is this, this holds true just as well for Greek. I mean, Matthew is a really good example, right? It opens with um, essentially at the baptism with, uh, or I'm sorry, Mark, uh, with schizo or a form of schizo, which means to rip open right? Uh, Jesus baptized and the sky rips open. And then at the very end of Mark, right, you get the same word when the temple veil is ripped open. And so it forms a really nice inclusio and God is speaking or acting in both of those situations. That's really cool. Um, and we don't want our people to miss things like that. That's, that, there's just a, a treasure trove of stuff that we can offer our people and we can do it in a way that isn't like, hey, I know Greek and you don't. Or, hey, I know Greek and I'm special. Uh, we can do it in a way that says, oh, here's this really rich thing in the Hebrew story or in the Greek story. And I just want to share this with you because I believe it's going to enrich you. And so it's not uh, doing the language stuff to try to get a leg up on anybody, um, but really to just enrich and edify everyone. Um, so... You know, my advice, if you know the languages, share them in Greek or share them in your sermons when it's pertinent or share them in your scripture studies, your home groups, your Bible studies, whatever you're doing. If you know it, if you don't know the languages, don't do it. Right. Um, but once you get a grasp on it uh, and you know what you're doing, uh, then then that's a, a good time to do it. But, um, you know, I think the problem sometimes comes when we make too much out of Greek words we or Hebrew words, and we freight them with too much meaning. And then we start to lapse into a bunch of, of fallacies, exegetical or word fallacies. And um, so I just say, if you don't know the language or languages, then don't do it. But as you get comfortable with them and using the resources to understand them, then that's a good time to they can start sharing these kinds of things. Um, I think if you're a pastor, uh, mentoring uh, people in your congregation to preach um, and to teach, I think those are incredible times to share language insights. I have three people in my congregation that I'm mentoring to be preachers, and um, I'm getting ready to go on a three-week trip, and so I've been working with them for weeks on end, um, helping them do research, helping them write the sermons. I've edit, helped edit the sermon. I've had them preach the sermons. And, you know, in some of those sermons, we've, we, we've talked about the language and some of the points being made. And so 
those would be good times for them to share those kind of insights. But once you know the language, the ability to mentor people and pass that on in the church is really important. Um, that's, uh, that's amazing. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. How, uh, how much time do you, are you able to spend preparing a sermon? Yeah, I spend probably between 18 to 25 hours a week on a sermon. Yeah. 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 To me, that's my, um, my, my greatest duty uh, is, is to work really, really hard on that sermon and to bring a, a fresh and powerful word yeah. when, when I'm in the pulpit. And so uh, you, write all your, you write all your sermons out, right? I preach using a manuscript. Yeah. Um, manuscript. Because I find it to be very efficient. I say what I mean to say and I don't go on tangents and I don't stumble around and uh, found the manuscript preaching to be very, very useful. It's not are for those, everybody, but yeah. Are those posted your your messages? So people maybe could see, get it. by the way, he's a live preacher. So you, you know, it's not like he's reading and you're like, uh, you know, yeah, can they, yeah. if they search for that, would they be able to find, find that? Yeah. If you, you just search the bridge church podcast or, you know, the Bridge Church podcast, something like that, Oahu, it'll come right up. Or if you go to bridgenaz.org um, and then go to our sermons page, you can find the podcast there. But Bridge Church podcast, and then maybe you can add Oahu on there and you'll find them. There's about a hundred and something, 30, 40, 50 sermons on there, I think. Yeah. Um, so as far as Greek and ministry goes, yeah. Um, Share in your sermons if you can, your home groups, mentoring, uh, staying plugged into the academy in this regard has been very important for me. Um, I've contributed to dictionaries and encyclopedias, and I'm doing all this as a pastor, right? Greek dictionaries, Greek encyclopedias, um, speaking at Greek conferences and publishing Greek works, and I'm doing all this as a pastor. And so this this isn't um the languages aren't a burden to me being a pastor and they aren't unuseful to being me to me being a pastor they are what fuels me as a pastor right the languages the the language study week in and week out is what fuels me as a minister in large part and the spirit's the one fueling me really but that language study is what gets me like going it's what keeps me interested in the scripture right uh, it's what opens up more theological questions and more cultural questions is the language it all starts with the language why did they say it this way why use this word and not not a different word you know why is this here what does this mean why is this construction you know ordered like this and the languages are what you know if you if you don't take the languages seriously if you and you don't stick with them, um, you have, I think, a lot of propensity to become lazy. Um, but even worse than that, you you're just missing out on what can fuel your ministry for years and years and years. The language study for me does that, right? Just and it's not even always a study; just the language reading um, does that for me. But stay plugged into the academy. I'm teaching still. A part-time professor. I'm presenting at conferences still. Um, I stay. I, I keep up with the languages through publishing. 
already talked a little about that. Fred and I run Glosa House, and we're always seeing more works and creating more works, uh, working with authors who are creating great stuff. And then um, another way that I keep up with it, which I love, is that Fred and I meet pretty often, and we do a podcast together. And what we do is we just open the text, and we don't prepare ahead of time. We just pick up where we left off the last time, discuss a couple of verses, and um, boy, that's super life-giving to me. And it's another way for me to keep up with the languages. And so I guess my point to you all is, is that uh, the languages fuel my ministry, and it's important that I have various ways, various inputs that are allowing me to keep up with the languages. Not just one, not just reading, right? Not just sermon prep, but um, mentoring other people, uh, publishing, teaching, presenting, podcasting, right? devotion, right? There's all these, all these inputs that, that are giving me different ways to keep up with the language so don't fizzle out or burn out. Um, yeah, and, and so, you know, working, the reality is that working with the languages, uh, just like when you're working with culture or theology, there's always, that, what that means is there's always more details to learn. And so I know every time I open the text, there's a new opportunity to see something there that I didn't see before. And back when Jerry Sumney said that, maybe you'll see something that we didn't. Man, I've, I've found that to be true a million times over now. I'm coming to the text expecting, I want to see something. I'm not just expecting to come and find something novel. That's what I'm saying. But I'm expecting, I'm going to see something here that's going to interest me. Maybe other people will have seen it before, but it might be the first time I've seen it before. And that, that gets me excited when, when that's the case. And so, Michael, yeah. we have about 10, 10 minutes. I don't know if there's any other questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a question. How, how does that work? Yeah, so you hear that question. So how does this work in a bivocational kind of setting? Like how, how can you give that much time to that when you're tent making and doing ministry? Yeah. Like yeah, I mean I'm I'm a I'm a tent making pastor. I have uh two other jobs in addition to being a pastor. I run a business and I'm also a part-time professor. Right. So I have three jobs and you have to to live in Hawaii. You have to have multiple jobs. Um, but I, I guess my answer to you is that it isn't so much a matter of time as it is desire. Right. Um, if I really want to do it, I'll, I'll make time to do it. Um, and every time I get in my my truck to uh, drive somewhere, I got a podcast queued up to listen to, you know, um, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make it a priority, or I have made it a priority, and because I've made it a priority, um, you know I love it, and it isn't a matter of oh I don't have time, it's a matter of, I'm gonna am I gonna make time to make this a priority? Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other questions? I don't see any other questions. Any any final thoughts? You've been kind of preaching hard. Yeah, so, well, I'm just I'm wondering I'm wondering uh, if anybody, as as I've been talking, if anybody is sort of resisting 
some of the things I'm saying. And that's okay if you are. Um, you think I'm just full of it. You think this is silly. Um, I, I like it. Asbury professor does. I have to figure out who that person is. <laughs> I, I have a stern, stern talk with them. Oh my goodness. Hopefully it's not in the biblical studies department. Um, I, I was thinking of a question like, you know, the church, um, you know, obviously the church is facing a lot of tough cultural issues, sexuality, identity, for example. Uh, there's other, other ones, um, you know, racism, sexism of different types, you know, just all kinds of stuff. A gender identity like can you imagine speaking into those questions from a biblical perspective without accessing biblical languages no not no. at all right that's a brilliant no, question actually you actually have to yeah. male female he made them yeah more than my, two i woke up this morning and my daughter she's uh, 14 and um I had a text message from her on, on uh, my phone and she's just in the other rooms. So I'm uh, kind of be crass. I'm sitting in the restroom. I just woke up looking at my phone and she's uh, asking me a question about, I think it was uh, Luke uh, 42. I don't, I can't remember Luke 22, 42, I think is what it was, where it just says that uh, Jesus, you know, when Jesus uh, was sweating drops of blood, and she was reading, she had took a screenshot of her Bible app, and in, I think it was the NIV, and it said that um, Jesus's, Jesus's sweat was like drops of blood. And she's like asking me, Dad, uh, I always thought Jesus sweated blood, but this says it was just like drops of blood. It's like, so which one is right? And I was thinking, man, that's amazing. My 14-year-old daughter is like texting me at 7 in the morning from her devotion time asking me this language question, right? And so sure enough, I just looked at uh, the Greek and yeah, there's an OC there uh, telling us that probably Jesus didn't sweat blood, but he sweated like drops of blood or some kind of simile going on. Um, and so I was just thinking, man, even just that, right? Being able to speak into that and just quickly looking at the Greek and being able to speak to it, that happens very often with congregants and I here's something else that I found to be true Fred is that the more that I've spent time sharing Hebrew and Greek uh, in studies and it from the pulpit I've found that the congregants I get to serve um, they start to begin thinking about that I wonder what the language behind this is saying and they start to ask. They start to ask those questions about the language, and so um, it's creating and cultivating, nurturing a culture yeah. where there's an interest in that. And yeah. if they see the pastor's love for it, um, you people are going to love it too, right? Um, that's just that's kind of just how it goes. And so, yeah, the the issues of uh, identity and sexuality. You're exactly right. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't be able to speak on 1 Corinthians uh, 6 or 7, you know, where Paul is talking about uh, malaku or malakos and our synecutes, uh, these sorts of things. What do those words mean? Yeah. People are making a big deal about those. Well, we know that one is, uh, that they're actually very graphic terms, right? Um, 
male penetrator and softy. Yeah, yeah, one who was doing the penetration, one who was receiving the penetration, you know, or in Romans 1, you know, there's a really interesting uh, thing going on there that's speaking into the issue of sexuality that our, our translations just completely miss, where it's, it talks about arson in arseni, right, a man being in a man, and it's very graphic, and our translations completely miss it leave it out because it's i guess too taboo but i i cannot imagine being able to speak with any real credibility into the issues that our culture are facing without having a strong language background i would feel like a fraud. i would feel like a fraud yeah how confident are you in our translations i mean is if we lean into this and make these kinds of statements that you're kind of making we're making what people will sometimes say, are you concerned about eroding people's confidence in the word of God or in the translations of the word of God? Um, How confident you know, are you in those translations? I'm not very confident, but I'm confident. Um, I think, I think they're generally reliable. Um, but uh, when I preach almost all the time, I use my own translation. Um, uh, or a, a translation that one of our authors at Glossa House has produced or something like that. And it's not just to use my own translation to be self-justifying. Certainly, I'm bouncing that off of other translations and commentaries and journal articles and those sorts of things. But um, I want to be as faithful to the text as I can as a teacher and preacher. And so more often than not, on a Sunday, when you show up at the bridge, you will see a translation that I've worked on myself and people will be able to balance that to themselves against whatever translation they might have an affinity for. Um, have you run across people who have been put off by your language use and, and why would they be, might they be? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I haven't found, um, I haven't found anyone who's particularly been put off by the language use, um, but I could see where someone could charge me with trying to be a know-it-all or trying to be an arrogant. I have I have been told by one person who is no longer a part of our congregation that I'm too academic in my preaching and um, whatever. <laughs> um, I, I I I entertain that and try to. Uh, understand where people are coming from, but I'm not going to back down on who I am as a teacher and preacher to satisfy that or pacify people. I'm going to stay true to who I am and to my calling. And uh, for me, being faithful to the text is is of the utmost importance, and I'm never going to compromise on that regardless um, whether somebody thinks it sounds too academic or not. doesn't matter a good place to end. Thanks so much, Michael. Taking the time out and you're about to take a long vacation, this long, well-deserved vacation, and you get to come to Wilmore. So looking forward to see you in a, about uh, 10 days. So. He's going to Wilmore for his vacation? Well, Michigan and then Wilmore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah, we're going to the Glacier Park and then Yellowstone and then our kids are going to church camp in Indiana, and then yeah, I'll swing by Wilmore to do some. See Fred, I got to do some filming over there too, so it'll be good. I'm excited. Is that for your commentary? 
on First Corinthians. Yeah. 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 So he's he's doing the seed bed on First Corinthians. You want to get that? Yeah. Good job, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fred. Hello, everyone. Okay.